0: I grew up in a, a rural Lutheran church in the middle of Michigan. I was baptized, grew up in Sunday school, passed affirmation class, confirmed my age at the mature age of 13, and went on to Lutheran high school. I knew who God was and therefore knew who He wasn't. I was comfortable in what I'd been told and left for college, quite content in my acceptance of the one true faith. Mine. A year into college, our professor told a classmate he was Christian simply because he was born to Christian parents. No, he responded, he chose the Christian faith and therefore by his choice, he learned the strategy to find salvation by grace from his original sins. But I was rocked upside down by his question. Why am I Christian? How could such a choice be happenstance? How could such an important life measure an identity, a destiny, a golden ticket into eternal bliss simply be by, by chance, by birthright, I, I was told that I had made this choice. But had I really, had I really gone to our library and uh, placed a copy of the Quran, the Vedas, the, the Tao, and the Bible all on a sturdy table and decided which was the best, godliest, cleverest, most logical, or most conser- uh, convenient, The answer, of course, was that I chose Christianity because it was chosen for me by my parents, who likely chose it by their parents. I felt like I had been tricked and brainwashed into a single story. If each faith was happenstance, and therefore this whole system of a deliverance from evil by a god by subscribing to a specific system of belief was meaningless, it could only be relevant if there was a choice, and if one was right and others were wrong. After a long period where the church then seemed irrelevant and meaningless to me, I eventually found peace that God is big enough to be in every faith. I became grateful again for the traditions and the framework that uh, where I learned about morality and respect for others. It did teach me of Jesus, his parables, his demonstration of humility and care for all people. Last week, I was lucky enough to share challah bread with my Jewish wife and celebrate Rosh Hashanah together with our son. I'm grateful that she was given a synagogue where her family shared traditions and taught her about love. And I look forward to spending time with my son in in such a place of stability, such as here where we come together in our differences in search for larger truths. Today, we are looking at the second half of Unitarian Universalism, Universalism, and a a message brought by John Murray a short 250 years ago where we are all one, not despite our differences, but because of our different paths. Each of us has wondered or pondered, struggled, and perhaps found peace again in a relationship with themselves and or a higher power in a way that is unique to us. And we'll learn how to appreciate these differences or even indifferences and be stronger together. Come, let us listen together.
1: Imagine this. On the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, every fall, Every year, the people make their peace with anyone they have wronged or slighted or injured or in any way neglected in the past 12 months. The task is not to patch things up, smooth things over, reach a compromise or sweep mistakes and uneasy memories under the rug. The task is not to feel better. The task is ownership. The goal is truth for its own redemptive sake. I did this. I said this to you, and it was wrong. I neglected this. I botched this. I betrayed you thusly. I demeaned you, whether you ever knew it or not. This is the truth in which both of us are living. I ask you to forgive me. Imagine how many deep breaths you would need to take. Imagine how many doors you'd have to knock on, how many phone calls you'd have to make, how many letters, how many lunches and coffees, how many awkward moments with your children and your parents and with strangers, that cashier to whom you spoke so sharply. Awkward is irrelevant. The task is not about comfort, it is about truth about wholeness and holiness restoration imagine this someone has been preparing all year to speak with you to write to you to ask you a hard question perhaps in some ways in some ways not quite conscious you have even known this and you have been preparing too Finally, you answer the door or the phone or open the letter with shaky hands and there it is, what you thought you'd been longing for but really have dreaded. Someone is asking your forgiveness. The task is not about comfort, it is about truth. Awkward is irrelevant. You get to choose now, you have to choose whether and how you will participate in restoration. Abandon the pleasant piety that claims knee jerk forgiveness as the unquestioned moral course. You get to choose which way will be right in this case, between you as persons and with all your gods. What response will make the world more whole? Imagine this. Something yearns in us to come round right. Something creaky, rusty heavy, almost calcified, within us, tries, in spite of us and of all our fears and self-deceptions, to turn and turn and creak and turn again and come round a little truer. Something in us stretches toward conversion. Imagine healing wholly from within. Tonight marks the beginning of Yom Kippur for the Jewish community. When the sun goes down this evening, the holiest day of the year will begin. Yom Kippur is also known as the Day of Atonement, a day to reflect, seek forgiveness, and commit to do better in the year to come. It can be a time of atonement within one's family, or friendship circles, it can be a time for healing within a religious community, a workplace, in a neighborhood, city, or nation. And it can be also a time for atonement with one's relationship to God, if they have one, whatever that might mean for them. Atonement is about returning to right relationship, or as I spoke of a couple of weeks ago, about returning to covenant, to wholeness, to oneness, atonement, or pronounced differently, at one mint. the process of becoming one once more, to begin a new year once again in love. Some of you were either raised Jewish or even still identify as Jewish or practice Jewish teachings and rituals in your lives. As Unitarian Universalists, we derive much wisdom and influence from Judaism, especially regarding our social ethics, which I preached about in January. Judaism is one of our sources of truth and meaning, and we honor this time of reflection and return to right relationship. As we conclude our final Sunday of September and our sermon series on renewal, I wanted to lift up some tributaries of water that meet us at this place along the river. Yom Kippur is one of these tributaries of water. The reading this morning by my friend and colleague, the Reverend Victoria Safford, outlines the hard but regular process of atonement, a lifelong process in which we are all invited to participate. What a time to think about forgiveness and about our relationships. What a time to think of healing and wholeness. What a time to live and attempt to make meaning of this cruel and grief-stricken nation we find ourselves in this fall. Yet the wisdom of Jewish teachings and the practice of returning to one another, of finding renewal with one another and through one another are gifts to our challenging lives this year. In a year like no other, in this year of 2020, Unitarian Universalists around the country are honoring another tributary, the 250th anniversary of Universalism. Universalism is one part of our religious heritage, as you use, as Unitarian, universalists. And for many of us, or should I say for many of you, the history of this tradition is less familiar because this has become your chosen community. Like Kevin, most, not all, but most of you were raised either in a different religious tradition, such as Christianity or Judaism, or in no religious community at all. And along your path, you have come to find Unitarian Universalism and UUCCI at a later time in your life. My story with Unitarian Universalism is like Kevin's with his unchosen faith of his childhood. I was born into this tradition and thus my parents chose it for me. Yet even with my born and raised UU identity, there are still lots of parts of our long history that I need to refresh myself on. And this is definitely a great chance to do so. 250, a fourth of a millennia, that doesn't come around all the time. In fact, it only comes around, well, I guess every 250 years. So this might be our chance to experience it. The story of the birth of universalism is one of much truth and folklore, like much of history. I suppose, but this is the version of the story I am most familiar with, and I want to share it with you. This version of the story is by my colleague, the Reverend Kelly Weissman Aspruth Jackson. As he tells it, the story goes, that there once was a minister named John Murray who lived in England. The congregation to which he belonged took religion very seriously. They believed in life after death, but they thought that almost everyone was going to have a terrible, horrible time after they died, a.k.a. a hell of a time. Just a very few people would get to live on comfortably forever. This belief was very important to John's congregation, and they didn't like anyone challenging it. Now it happened that John Murray met first one person and then a whole bunch of people who disagreed with the idea so precious to his congregation. These new friends of John also believed in a life after death, but they thought that everyone would get to live together happily instead of a few people having fun and everyone else being miserable, AKA, as I like to call it, a heavenly hootenanny by the way, these are my editorializations, not Kelly's. Anyways, where was I? Okay. After a while, John decided that his idea made more sense a heavenly hoot nanny, and more kinder and a better way for the world to be. So he became a universalist. But John's old congregation didn't like his ideas at all. Uh oh. Not only did they not want to hear about them, but they told him that if he was going to have such ideas about everyone getting to be happy after they died, he would have to leave their church. A lot of other bad things happened in John's life after he was forced to leave his community. He lost his, his family, his wife and child, and he ended up in prison for not being able to pay money that he owed. When he left England for the British colonies in North America, this was, after all, before there was a country called the United States of America, he swore he would never preach or work as a minister again. And for those writers and rhetoricians out there, this is what we call a not so subtle foreshadowing. Anyway, so back in those days, the ships weren't that sturdy, so all the ships that people used to travel were blown from place to place by the wind. As John's ship was getting near his destination in New York, it was blown away to New Jersey. How tragic, am I right? And had to stay there until the winds changed direction. Ooh, that's some good symbolism. John went ashore to find something to eat while his ship was stuck, and he met a man named Thomas Potter. Tom had been hoping for years to find someone who would preach in the little lonely church that he had built himself. Tom held the same unpopular idea about life after death that John did, and he was also a universalist. What a dink. Tom asked John over and over again to preach in his little empty church, but John had sworn to never preach again. Finally, Tom got John to promise that he would preach if the wind did not change in time for his ship to leave by Sunday. John hoped that he would be gone by then and wouldn't have to make good on his promise. But the winds did not change. And that Sunday, John Murray preached his first sermon in North America. Instead of abandoning his previous Uh, life as a minister, John went on from New Jersey to spread the idea of universalism all over the American Northeast. For that, we have not only John Murray to thank, we also owe our gratitude to Thomas Potter, who knew that there were people who needed John's message and worked so hard to convince him to share it with the world. You see that blend of truth and perhaps a little folklore. But that's how the story goes. And in 1770, the universalist movement began in America and would go on to make a profound impact on this country up to this day. While we we blended our families of Unitarians and universalists in 1961, that's only 59 years ago, the spirit and wisdom of universalism is still alive and visible if we know where to look for it. For example, universalists were some of the most ardent people in the early United States around the concept of the freedom of religious expression, as opposed to religion defined by creed. The great 20th century universalist minister, the Reverend Robert Cummins, who is often referred to as the modern architect of organized universalism, He tied the birth of this tradition to the founding of the United States itself. He writes, while universalist ideas reach back 2,500 years, universalism finds itself peculiarly at home in democratic America. In fact, it is one of the few religious denominations of purely American origin. He goes on to say, Its its genius is its liberty, its fathers dared challenge tyrannies of ecclesiastical authority, of church authority, interpreting life in larger, more triumphant terms. Its beginnings were linked with the stormy days of political and industrial revolution. Its prophets were stoned and ostracized, one of its most admirable characteristics is its determination to uphold the right of every person to interpret the fundamentals of religion according to his or her conscience. Absolute freedom of utterance and latitude for adventure are secured for laity and clergy alike. It has pledged itself to the struggle for complete emancipation." So freedom, freedom was central to our universalist forebears. But this concept extended beyond the emancipation of the mind, beyond freedom of belief as a value to uphold. There was a social implication to the universalist commitment to emancipation and that is toward the flourishing of all life on this earth. Universalists reaching back to their original meaning of universal salvation believe that we are all in all of us we are all due a life and perhaps an afterlife of happiness and wholeness which is a pretty wild assertion in the days when lutheranism and calvinism were carving out a much smaller entry to the big party in the sky the heavenly hootenanny and while unitarian while universalists and unitarian universalists have come to focus much more on this lifetime on this world, rather than the possibility of the next life, this commitment to our one big family on this earth has maintained strong has maintained uh, strong and central to who we are. As Unitarian Universalists, we believe in justice for all, in peace for all, and we seek to overcome injustice in all forms, not just for some people, but for everyone. We are all in. We are all in in our history and present day actions reinforce this. Reverend Cummins, and by the way, what a home field advantage surname, Reverend Cummins. Well, Reverend Cummins went on to say that, quote, the universalist church offers a moral and spiritual fellowship of persons whose ideal is the drawing together of all people, learning and teaching the basic values of religion. And devoting themselves to such obviously essential tasks as the relief of suffering, the rebuilding of that which war has destroyed, and the establishment of moral principles of world government. End quote. The Universalist Church of America, the predecessor to our Unitarian Universalist Association, believed in our ability to be one world to break down the walls and barriers that divide us and work for the common good of all. And ain't that the vision we need in 2020? Instead, we are faced with a potential collapse of democracy as we know it. Historic fires and hurricanes impact tens of millions of people in the West and the Southeast and a rise in racial hostility is causing tension points that is testing our very resolve as a nation. The invitation of these two tributaries we find ourselves at, these tributaries of Yom Kippur and our 250th anniversary of universalism in the US has come just in time for us to recommit to ourselves, to one another, to this community, and perhaps to other communities or things in life. Yom Kippur and the call of universalism always seems to show up to arrive right on time. So what will you do, you, to return to oneness? Who in your life would you like to seek forgiveness from? Where are you in this circle of life? And is there something you can do to draw the circle wider still? I believe our universalist heritage is more important now than ever. I believe that while we are not universalists in the same way that John Murray or Thomas Potter were in 1770, we are charged to continue this legacy of affirming that we are all in, all of us. We are all worthy of love, worthy of justice. And I believe that we will not stop following this stream of history, or should I say shaping, carving out this stream of history, until it flows down mountains and across the plains, meeting up with other streams and rivers and finding itself at one once more, with the ocean. May we renew our commitment to that history, to our history and to our present situation, as hard as it is. And may we carry on, carry on into the future with the winds of universalism squarely at our backs. May it be so. And amen.